Let's open God's word now. Today we're reading from Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Revelation chapter 12 from verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. 
It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. That uh, terrifically. There's a fair bit to take in, isn't there? Two chapters. Um, I'm going to pray because I think... We all need help with understanding a passage like that, making sense of it. I know I do. Um, I experienced that uh, in preparing uh, this week from Jason's notes. Um, let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that you are the God who has revealed yourself to us through the scriptures. Your word of truth is to be relied upon. Will you please help us now, grant us the mind of Christ as we open the scriptures. May our hearts also be opened by the power of your spirit to comprehend the message, the point of, that is revealed to us. And help us please to be able to apply that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, over the last two decades, it's no exaggeration to say that there's been a growing hostility towards the church in Australia and around the, the Western world. Let me give you just some examples here in Australia. Uh, scripture in schools is being opposed on the grounds that Christianity is, has no place in the public school system. Many educational institutions have banned the teaching of the real meaning of Christmas and Easter. Quite a number of shopping centres uh, refuse to play Christmas carols, or at least Christmas carols that are explicitly about the birth of Christ. 
the Gideons are finding it harder and harder to get permission to place Bibles in hotels. During the same-sex marriage plebiscite, Dr Pansy Lay, who appeared in a TV commercial for the No campaign, was the subject of a petition for her to be deregistered as a doctor. Several years ago, Hobart Presbyterian Minister Campbell Markham was forced to appeal to the High Court simply because he had written about the traditional perspective on marriage in his blog site. Now, these are all signs of growing hostility towards Christians. And in many Western nations, the church is regarded as toxic. It's, it's regarded as if, if we express our views, it will hinder the advancement of society. So we're a positive hindrance, even a toxic uh, influence on society and its advancement. So what do you think is underlying that cause for the hostility? What's the underlying cause for it? On one level, we could say rising secularism in the Western world is behind that hostility. We know the media promotes left, a left-leaning agenda, political parties increasingly legislate uh, away from Christian values, there's rampant materialism, insidious pluralism, there's the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. All of these things, no doubt, also contribute to that hostility. But could we not also say that the underlying cause for the hostility that falls upon the church is the rage of Satan himself? We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Revelation 12 shows us that Satan is so enraged by the defeat he suffered at the hands of Christ that he has directed his hostility towards the followers of Christ, the church, and he seeks to devour that man-child, the son that was born to the woman. So please look with me at Revelation 12, verses 1 to 3. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Now, we struggle a bit, don't we, because of the imagery. But think about what the imagery is depicting. We have here described the church, symbolised by the woman, and Satan, symbolised by the dragon, beauty and the beast, if you like. The symbolism takes us back to Genesis 3.15, when God cursed Satan and promised, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the woman, if you like, is true Israel, the people of God from whom the Messiah comes. 
And we follow, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the church, Jew and Gentile, the true believers in the Lord, are the ones depicted here. She is described as being clothed with the sun because she's blessed by God and radiant. The moon under her feet shows she holds dominion and 12 crowns show her royalty. We also see that a great red dragon is waiting for her to give birth, not to celebrate the child, but to devour the child. So verse 9 tells us the dragon is the devil himself. The picture that's painted is the advent of Christ and Satan's attempt to destroy him. The dragon is described as being a great red dragon because his colour depicts his murderous intentions. So do you remember Herod's destruction of the, the children aged two years and under, the boys two years and under at the time of the birth of Christ? It's an expression of the rage of Satan through Herod. Jesus' temptation in the desert after his baptism. And of course, the cross itself. These were all attempts of Satan to devour God's son, kill him, get rid of him. It's a symbolic way of describing what we hear and read about in the Gospels. The symbolism of seven heads speaks of his worldwide power. Ten horns depict the strength of his power and the seven crowns are his audacious claim to royal power over against the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 4 and 5, we're told that as Mother Church gives birth to her son, the nations... Um, the, the, he, he is snatched up to his throne, the son that is born. So the Messiah who will rule all nations of the earth with an iron scepter is snatched up. This means that in verses 4 and 5, we have jumped forward from the birth of Jesus to his ascension to heaven, his resurrection, ascension and glorification in heaven. So what these verses do, and these two chapters emphasise, it's focusing us on Christ's victory with particular reference to Satan. The effect of the cross on Satan. According to verses 7 to 9, Christ's death and resurrection and ascension to heaven has resulted in Satan's downfall, his defeat. We're reminded that the advent of Christ and the devil's authority to destroy him brought about the defeat of Satan. Look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. On account of Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension to glory, Satan and his angels suffered a catastrophic defeat that hurled them out of the throne room of God to heaven. 
Satan no longer can walk amongst the sons of God like we read in the book of Job. So what does Satan's defeat mean for Mother Church? Look at verses 12 and 17. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to their testimony about the Lord Jesus. What we see here is that Satan, after losing the battle against Christ, turns his rage on the offspring of the woman, the followers of Christ, the church. It means everyone who loves Jesus Christ and trusts him is in the crosshairs of Satan. Satan knows his days are numbered. And so he attacks the church in his fury. Just as he tried to devour the Christ child, he now tries to devour the followers of Christ, the children of God, like you and me. But what we find is that Satan's attempts to destroy the church while causing pain and a lot of trouble and anguish will not succeed. The imagery in verses 13 and 14 make this clear. We read that the woman is given two wings, the wings of a great eagle, so she can fly away into the wilderness to be nourished out of the dragon's reach. It takes us back to the imagery of the Old Testament where when Israel came out of Egypt, we're told in, in, Genesis, in Exodus 19 that the Lord gave his people, he upheld them like on eagle's wings and he sustained them. Think about it, manna from heaven, quail, water from the rock. He sustained his church in the wilderness, his people in the wilderness. And it's saying exactly the same, like God looked after his old covenant people, the Jews, he will look after us who believe in the new covenant saviour, Jesus Christ. We will find sustenance and protection in whatever hardships we go through. So do you remember during the Exodus, the desert was a place of God's protection? Well, hold on to that because God has promised to protect us. He will look after us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he's promised. So it's not a literal desert. It's describing a place of hardship and scarcity. Friends, according to Revelation 12, the underlying cause for the hostility that falls upon the church is the rage of Satan, who in his defeat, seeks to destroy us. This is the underlying reason why Christians are martyred. We just heard about that. Why the world is so hostile towards the church's views on chastity before marriage, faithfulness in marriage, God's intended relationship between men and women, the sanctity of life and so forth. So 
How are we to respond to this rage of Satan? Look at verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The church overcomes spiritual attack through an ever-deepening faith in Christ and his promises, taking them to heart by continuing to declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution, oppression and suffering move us to trust in the one whose lifeblood is the power of our salvation. Think about it. It's through the power of Christ's blood that our sins are completely washed away. Our guilt is lifted. Our shame is covered through the blood of Christ. It's Christ's blood that frees us from the power of sin to enslave us and the penalty of sin to condemn us, all achieved through the cross. Let me ask you, what do you have, I apply, I include myself in this, what do we have that is worth more than the blood of Christ who takes away our sins? Tell me, out of all the things you own, what is of more value than Jesus Christ? I can't think of one. It is Christ. It is in Christ, by Christ and through Christ that we overcome the rage of Satan. And verse 11 tells us it's our testimony, our declaration of the truth about Christ that brings victory into the lives of others. It's by preaching the gospel that God establishes his kingdom in the lives of those who are lost. That's what John means in verse 11 when he declares they overcame him by the word of their testimony. When people hear from us about Jesus Christ and believe in him, Satan suffers the most humiliating shame and defeat all over again. It happened to him at the cross and then every believer who comes to faith, it happens all over again. It's rubbing his nose in it. He's powerless. So what's a win for Christianity? It's not a no vote on the marriage plebiscite or a parliamentary bill that upholds Christian values, although we obviously pray for all those things. But that's not the real win. We could have all the legislation in Australia lined up with gospel values but what would it matter if no one comes to faith in Jesus Christ? Remember, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. But it's only through faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel, that anyone is saved. Satan is not defeated through legislation, but through declaring Christ and his gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So when that gospel is faithfully preached in word and deed and people are converted from darkness to light and receive new life, that's a win for Christ and his church. 
my sisters and brothers. This means we must respond to the rage of Satan by resting more deeply in Christ and sharing his gospel with those around us. We should all ask ourselves, do we daily come before the Lord in humility, confessing our emptiness, our unworthiness, our powerlessness, and by faith rest in Christ's infinite fullness because that's where our victory stems from. Christ. He is our righteousness. Are we praying then in the strength of Christ and the power of his spirit for our non-Christian family members and friends to come to know Jesus? Are we praying for the man who delivers our wood to come to know the Lord? Are we looking for opportunities to tell others the good news about Jesus? Remember, the gospel changes lives and the conversion of the lost is the bitterest pill for Satan to swallow. It makes him gag and makes him furious. Now, if chapter 12 reveals to us the occasion for Satan's rage then chapter 13 reveals to us the instruments through whom he expresses that rage. There are two beasts. But before we look at those two beasts, let me just take you to 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19, because this will help us understand the meaning of this chapter. 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19 say this. Dear children... This is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So in these verses, John is telling us that the Antichrist is yet to come, that ultimate end-time figure of vicious opposition to God. He's yet to come. But even now, which was written 2,000 years ago, many antichrists have already come. So in the Bible, the antichrist is a powerful figure who will deify authority through dictatorial regime, opposing God, and it'll be at the end of history. But while that might be the case, it doesn't mean we're out of the woods until that happens. Many antichrists have already come and they're already out in the world. That means Satan does not work in isolation. He has, he is, and he will use agents to further his cause. In Revelation 13, those two agents are described as two beasts who carry out Satan's work of destruction and deceiving. The first beast is a beast of destruction. The second beast is a beast of deception. So look at Revelation 13, 1 and 2. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast its power and his throne and great authority. 
So the dragon gave to those beasts, that, that beast with those characteristics, its power and authority. Now think of the animals described there. They devour a leopard, a lion, a bear. Don't get in their way. So it's not literal, though. It's symbolic of power that devours, consumes, destroys. Think again of James. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So in biblical times, the sea symbolised chaos and turmoil. So when we read of the beast rising out of the sea, it tells us something about the role of this hideous creature. He's going to cause chaos, confusion, destruction. The ten horns are ten kings. We know this because Revelation 17.10 tells us. And the ten crowns symbolise the authority these kings exercise in the world, their political authority. But who is this beast? We read that it has the authority of Satan, verse 4. It blasphemes the name of God, verses 5 and 6. It battles victoriously against the saints, so it's strong and effective, and, and Christians can be affected by it too, verse 7. And it receives the worship of the world. The world adores the beast and goes after it. So on one level, this beast can be identified with many figures throughout history. We think of Nero, we think of Domitian, uh, the very time when, when this was being written, um, there was emperor worship and John was in exile on Patmos. They were suffering because of political power that sought to deify political authority over against the church. If anyone didn't bow down before the emperor, then they would be imprisoned or executed. We saw the same kind of thing in World War II with the adulation of Hitler. It's like cult worship. And I think we see it today in King John Ong in North Korea. His word is law. What he says goes, and he's utterly, implacably opposed to the church. Such devotion to a mere mortal should be reserved for God alone. It's wrong. It tells us this is Antichrist. At a personal level, we see this Antichrist spirit whenever a husband tries to dominate his wife and children or a pedophile swears their victim to secrecy on, penalty, on pain of penalty. Such absolute authority and domination and subservience to another person belongs to the province of God. So we know Satan is behind that kind of behaviour. If anyone here is behaving like that today, stop it. Think seriously about it. It is wrong. It is not the way of Christ. But on another level, the complete fulfilment of these verses awaits the last days. 
Since the time of Christ's victory and Satan's defeat, the beast has always been present in one form or another. But ultimately, he is that end-time figure who will exercise a strongly secular authority over the world against the church. Look at verses 7 and 8. It was given power to make war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. So it's worldwide. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life. The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Keeping in mind that the ultimate authority, the ultimate fulfilment of this Antichrist is yet to come... There have been countless regimes under Satan's sinister influence who have blasphemed God, destroyed Christians and sought worship from its people, emperor worship, devotion to political leaders or to an ideology. That is due to God alone. It is wrong. Friends, What the Lord is revealing to us here is that Satan does not work in isolation. He uses agents to destroy and deceive the church. And he can employ any kind of ideology that suits his purposes. The reason the Lord is making us aware of this is to prepare us. So that when we experience persecution or hostility, we will look to the Lord not to legislation, that we will look to Christ and the comfort of his spirit and rely on the promises of God and we will endure patiently whatever afflictions and trials come our way knowing where they come from, the evil one. So the second beast, if the first beast is Satan's instrument of destruction, and the second beast in verses 11 to 18 is Satan's instrument of deception. At first appearance, this second beast does not seem as terrible as the first. In verse 11, we're told he has horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. And in verse 13, he performs great and miraculous signs. But while he may not look as dangerous, he most certainly is. Because we read in verse 14, because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Whereas the first beast sought to destroy God's people through the exercise of raw power, this beast's danger lies in its great power of deception. Revelation 16.13, this second beast is identified with the false prophet through which it seeks to lead the world to conform to the worship of its first beast. In fact, this beast demands conformity at the threat of death and works to impose its power by economic boycott. Unless you have its mark, you can't buy or sell. That's a way of saying there's political manipulation going on that affects the the livelihood of people. Now we see it as very common 
around the world, isn't it? That we, we you know, there's ec economic sanctions on North Korea, economic sanctions on Iran, because we don't agree with where they're coming from. Well, it's saying that this is like the mark of the beast. This is how he works. Political manipulation, control, exercising, exerting authority over others. Another way this beast works is through false religions, cults and sects who deceive and enslave their adherents. Another way it works is through enslaving ideology. What has communism produced? Oppression. Fascism. All of these ideologies wind up being repressive. They're not from heaven. They're from the pit. There's much debate about what 666 means. Without going into theories, I think the best way to sum up this number is to say that it characterises failure. 666 is failure. It says it's the mark of a man, etc. The number of man is six. Man was created on the sixth day. The number of God is seven. He completed his work of creation on the seventh day. So six suits the devil because while he wants to be supreme, he falls short every time like every sinner does. And 666 may well symbolise the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, all of whom are doomed to failure and eternal death. These verses teach us that deception and false teaching is a constant danger for the church until Christ returns. So look at Revelation 13, 9 and 10. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. There it is in black and white. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. The way we overcome the Antichrist and his false teaching is by patiently enduring all suffering and loss for the sake of Christ and by staying faithful to the gospel. We are to be those who never give up believing in Christ or tolerating error, either in our own life or in the church. It's by remaining faithful to Christ and his word that we will overcome every antichrist spirit and false teaching that comes our way. My sisters and brothers, we must be willing to give up all for Christ, whatever it might be, to hold fast to his promises, no matter what it costs us. This is the consistent message of Revelation, isn't it? By patient endurance, we can be a living testimony to Satan that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And now he has the allegiance of our hearts, not by dominion and exertion, but by love. So to summarise... 
what we learn from these two chapters is Satan, who was defeated at the cross, is enraged with the church. He's a very, very sore loser. So he tries to deceive and destroy us by using various agencies. He's an abuser and a user. Anyone who operates along those lines is not showing Christ-likeness, but likeness to the, the evil one. And this is the underlying cause of the hostility that falls upon the church. He is deadly serious. He prowls around seeking to devour. So let us respond to Satan's hostility and deception with ever-deepening faith in the one who is committed to raising us up at the last day. Let us be grounded in Christ with ever-deepening confidence in his word and his promises. And let us become people who love God and love our neighbour with ever-deepening patience and endurance. It is becoming clearer and clearer as we go through the book of Revelation that we either give our allegiance to Satan and face the wrath of Christ or we give our allegiance to Christ and face the wrath of Satan. The suffering church is not only showing us the way but also highlighting to us there is no neutral ground between beauty and the beast. There's no neutrality. One is cursed, the other is blessed. One is of God, the other is of Satan. Let's pray. Father, we know that today is not exactly a feel-good message. but we can derive tremendous encouragement from knowing that he who promised is faithful and will do it. You have begun a good work in us and you will complete it. You will never leave nor forsake us. You love your church. And the rage of Satan will not be allowed to prosper against the church. Heavenly Father, may we not be ashamed of your Son or his glorious gospel. Thank you for reminding us today that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of darkness. We thank you, Father, that you teach us to put on Christ and to put on the gospel armour so that we can withstand all the schemes of the evil one. Clothe us with the mind of Christ, the truth of the word. Help us to put on the breastplate of righteousness and that helmet of the hope of salvation, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and help us to take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit by which we can oppose all that Satan throws at us. We thank you for the example our Saviour showed when he was tested in the desert. 
It is written, it is written, it is written. Drive us back to what is written. Help us to know that you are faithful and true, to believe your word and to be filled with your spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen.